So if you're new to the church, before I read this chapter, I'm going to tell you kind of my methodology. January will be 22 years for me here, praise the Lord. Um, in my, I've, had a, I've, I've had a method, a track that I've been following for 22 years is regarding my, especially my preaching and my teaching ministry, there's a synergism, there's a method to my madness. In the morning, I preach exegetical series through New Testament. And so we just start in a book, let's say Acts, which is what we're on. Acts 1-1, you plow through the book. I'm a book series guy. And then in the evening, for the past 22 years, primarily, it's an exegetical series through an Old Testament book like this, Numbers. And so that, that's my method. The Holy Spirit inspired it this way. That, that's what I want to uh, follow and so, and then when I teach Sunday school, and um, I either do systematic theology, a catechism, something like that, um, or a system, just following a systematic like Louis Burkhoff, or I do what's, co- what's called experimental theology, the Puritans, how, how then should we live, a mix of both. My desire is anyone that would come to this ministry, the best that I can do it, I mean, I'm, the best that I can do it, um, if you came for four or five years and availed yourself to the preaching, teaching ministry, the best that I could give you, you would get a full-orbed picture of the Bible. I, I'm a Bible guy. I, I am a Bible guy, sola scriptura. And so ordinarily, no normal person in their right mind would read what I'm about to read because they would think, who, who would do this? Well, the Holy Spirit inspired it. It's written for our instruction. And this is part of just e- even if you had a very, very busy week, you're at least going to have one day a week today. You're going to have an opportunity to hear one whole chapter of the Bible that most normal Christians will never even read to their, to their shame. But that's the method. The method is to give a full-orbed presentation of God's Word because God's going to hold me accountable for my ministry to you as um, the Bible says um, both in First Peter chapter 5 and then certainly in Hebrews chapter 13. I'll give an account to my pastoral labors um, towards you. Okay. All right. Numbers 4. Chapter 4. What do we have? 49 verses. So um, uh, strap in. Um, Hear God's holy word. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, to Aaron, saying, Take a census of the descendants of Kohath from among the sons of Levi by their families, by their fathers' households, from 30 years old and upward, even to 50-year-olds, all who enter the service to do the work in the tent of meeting. This is the work of the descendants of Kohath in the tent of meeting concerning the most holy things. When the camp sets out, Aaron and his son shall go in, and they shall take down the veil and the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. <coughs> they shall lay a covering of porpoise skin on it. They shall spread it with a cloth of pure blue uh, cloth and shall insert it in its poles. Over the table of the bread of presence, they shall spread a cloth of blue and put on, on it the dishes and the pans, the sacrificial bowls, the jars for the drink offering, the continual bread shall be on it. They shall spread over them a cloth of scarlet material and cover the same with the covering of porpoise skin. They shall insert its poles. They shall take the blue cloth, cover the lampstand for the light along with its lamps, its snuffers, its trays, its oil vessels by which they serve it. They shall put in it all its utensils and a covering of purpose, porpoise skin. They shall put it on the carrying bars over the golden altar. They shall spread a blue cloth, cover it with a covering of porpoise skin. They shall insert its poles. 
They shall take all the utensils of service with which they serve in the sanctuary, put them in the blue cloth, cover them with a covering of porpoise skin, put them in the carrying bars. They shall take away the ashes from the altar, spread a purple cloth over it. They shall put on it all its utensils by which they serve in connection with it, the fire pans, the forks, the shovels, the basins, all the utensils of the altar. They shall spread a cover of porpoise skin over it, insert it in its poles. When Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy objects and the furnishings of the sanctuary, then the camp is to set out. After that, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them, so that they will not touch the holy objects and die. These are the things in the tent of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. The responsibility of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, is the oil for the lamp and the fragrant incense and the continual grain offering, the anointing oil, the responsibility of all the tabernacle, of all that is in it, with the sanctuary and its furnishings. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, to Aaron, saying, Do not let the tribe of the family of the Kohath be cut off from the Levites, but do this to them that they may live and not die when they approach the most holy objects. Aaron and his sons shall go in and assign each of them to his work and to his load, but they shall not go in to see the holy objects even for a moment or they will die. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take a census of the sons of Gershon also by their father's households, by their families, from 30 years old and upward to 50 years old. You shall number them, all who enter to perform the service to do the work in the tent of meeting. This is the service of the family of the Gershonites in serving and carrying. They shall carry the curtain of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting with its covering, the covering of the porpoise skin that is on top of it, the screen for the doorway of the tent of meeting, the hanging of the court, the screen for the doorway of the gate of the court, which is around the tabernacle and the altar, and their cords and all the equipment for their service, and all that is to be done, they shall perform. All of the service of the sons of the Gershonites and all their loads and all their works shall be performed at the command of Aaron and his sons. You shall assign to them a duty, all their loads. This is the service of the families of the sons of the Gershonites in the tent of meeting, and their duties shall be under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. As for the sons of Merari, you shall number them by their families, by their father's households, from 30 years old and upward, even to 50 years old. You shall number them, everyone who enters the service, to do the work of the tent of meeting. Now this is the duty of their loads for all their service in the tent of meeting. The boards of the tabernacle, its bars, its pillars, its sockets, the pillars around the court and their sockets, their pegs, their cords, with all their equipment and with all their service, you shall assign each man by name items he is to carry. This is the service of the family of the sons of Merari, according to all the service in the tent of meeting, under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. So Moses and Aaron, the leaders of the congregations, numbered the sons of the Kohathites by their families, by their father's households, from 30 years old and upward even to 50, everyone who entered the service for work in the tent of meeting. Their numbered men by their families was 2,750. These are the numbered men of the Kohathite family, everyone who was serving in the tent of meeting, whom Moses and Aaron numbered according to the commandment of the Lord through Moses. The numbered men of the sons of Gershon by their families, by their father's households, from 30 years old and upward even to 50 years old. Everyone who entered the service for the work in the tent of meeting, their numbered men by their families, by their father's households, was 2,630. These are the numbered men of the families of the sons of Gershon, everyone who was serving in the tent of meeting, whom Moses and Aaron numbered according to the commandment of the Lord. The numbered men of the families of the sons of Merari, by their families, by their father's households, 
from 30 years old and upward, even to 50 years old. Everyone who entered the service for work in the tent of meeting, their numbered men by their families was 3,200. These are the numbered men of the families of the sons of Merari, whom Moses and Aaron numbered according to the commandment of the Lord through Moses. All of the numbered men of the Levites, whom Moses and Aaron and the leaders of Israel numbered by their families, by their fathers' households, from 30 years old and upward, even to 50 years old, everyone who could enter to do the work of the service and the work of the caring in the tent of meeting, their numbered men were 8,580. According to the commandment of the Lord through Moses, they were numbered, everyone by his serving or carrying, these were his numbered men, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, you are a merciful God, and I pray that you would be merciful to me. I do desire to rightly divide your word, rightly dispense it, both in the propositional content and even in um, my tone, Lord, even in my countenance, that I would be pleasing to you and that you might make it profitable to your people. Have mercy upon us, Lord. Conform us into your image. Cause us to be submissive and obedient students of yours. Good sons and daughters, if anyone hears the sermon, Lord, that heretofore is still walking in darkness, might the light of even this passage bring them savingly to Christ Jesus. Um, Lengthen, Lord God, extend your kingdom. Destroy the kingdom of the devil. Use the ministry of the word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, um, let me bring let me bring us um, to our remembrance where we are in the context of the book. Obviously, we've just started off. I don't know what we are, sermon five or six, something like that. In the previous chapter, we're dealing with Levites here, obviously. In the previous chapter, chapter three, we had a census of the tribe of um, uh, Levi, and then we looked at the various families descending from Levi. And then chapter 3, there was a general description of the various labors that got assigned to those tribal families descending from Levi. What you have here is a further extrapolation of the particular duties. So one was a general census and the description of the duties. This is a more specific. This is God directing the tribe of Levi, which is the priestly tribe, and those various families that would descend from him, the various duties that God is giving them in specifically the tabernacle, which is the place where he places his name, and then the Holy of Holies, and so on, with the Ark of the Covenant, the, the, the law, with the, the, holy, the, the high priest goes in on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, covers the mercy seat with blood. This is the place that God dwells with his people, and he dwells with them in a reconciled manner. So all of these various things, I know if you're not used to thinking like this, All of these things are the ways that God expressed the gospel in the Old Testament. For a good summary of this, read the book of Hebrews with an eye to this kind of a book like Numbers and certainly Leviticus. So try to read Numbers through the lenses of the book of Hebrews and it will make sense to you. So this is how Moses knew knew, knew Christ and so on and Abraham believed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And another summary, summary place that I would go is our confession of faith. Chapter 7 deals with the administration of the covenant of grace, which this is an expression of. 
and then read that with the, with the proof text. And then if you really are fastidious, try to read chapter 8, which is on Christ, the covenant head, in relationship to all of this business. So we, when we come to the ceremonial law, if you're not looking at it rightly, you just think, boy, this is just too detailed and I don't quite understand it. But when you have your Christological lenses on, it will make sense. And I'm not being silly. It's not we're finding Christ where Christ isn't. Christ is the high priest. Christ is the scapegoat. Christ is the Passover. Christ is the feast. Christ is the tabernacle. Uh, Christ is all of these things that are typological of him. So we're looking at, um, we're, we're looking at God providing a, a redeemer for his people. So now we're in that um, an ex- extrapolation, a more detailed expression of God's distribution of labor to the Levites. But what's interesting with the chapter that we're looking at, specifically when you get to the, the age limitation of 30 to 50. So we're not just looking at the Levites, from which we get the uh, ironical priests and then the priestly helpers. We're not just looking at the number of those men because we were to number them the males from a month u- upward. But we're looking at a specific class of those individuals from 30 to 50. This is active duty service age. Um, I don't know what the t- upper age range was, is now for the military. Some of you guys in the military could tell me. Um, I, I don't know whether, I, I think you can still get in at 17 if your folks sign off. But I don't know to get in, to be a newbie, to get in. I don't know what the upper age is. I know many years ago, and I'm 59, so many, many years ago, at 39, I was in a, in a presbytery, a minister's meeting, and a chaplain came in, and he hit me up. He said, you, can, you too can join the Navy. I said, what are you talking about? I'm an old man. I'm 39. He said, oh, no. And I think they had just bumped up. The, I said, well, this is silly. I'm too old for that. But there's a, there's a limit. So we're, what we're looking at here is active duty service age and then the, the specific duties of these particular families. I want to point out something. So I'm going to look at three main lessons from this. I'm not going to walk through each and every verse. We would be here as long as Methuselah lived. I'm going to look at three lessons from this particular chapter. We're going to consider God's sovereignty as he distributes the labors. Then we're going to see that God's ways are not man's ways and the uniqueness of how he distributes the labors. And then we will consider, uh, lastly, God's special care that he has for our souls. And I would argue He's calling us to value our souls more than our body. So those three things, the sovereignty of God, the uniqueness of God's government, and God's valuation of the soul. Jesus Christ says, don't fear those who can kill the what? The body. Fear him who can kill the body and then kill the soul in hell. So human beings have a material part and an immaterial part. Even with the giving of the Levites, as I hope to show, it's an expression of God's concern for um, the soul. The soul is the most valuable part of us. The soul is who you are. If you were to cut your leg off, it's still you. If you were to lose some kind of limited use of your body, it's still you. Uh, when you're 14 and healthy, it's still you. When you're 59 and not healthy, it's still you. It's the soul. I'm not a Gnostic. I'm not denying the body. Okay. I want to introduce some things before we get to those lessons and specifically as dealing with the age range of, uh, of active duty service. 
And, and I'm just going to prepare you. Part of my job is to, to, to call you to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, to prepare you to die, obviously, so that your sins would be reconciled. But it's to build us up in the faith. And so this is written for our instruction. If I know that there will be people gunning for your faith, to hurt your faith, to try to, to, to call you away from fidelity to the Bible, and I know what they're going to do, it's my duty as your minister to prepare you for those wolves so you can say, aha, my pastor told me about this. There will be people, you can find them online, you might even, they might be your brother or your brother-in-law or your mom, sad to say, who will say, oh no, so you believe the Bible is the word of God. Yeah, yeah, I totally do. And you think the Bible has no errors. Yes, I, I, I know the Bible has no errors. And then they're going to go, aha. And they come to this passage and they go, I got you. You say the Bible says 30 to 50. That's what the Bible says. Now they're going to say this. So in Numbers chapter 4, we have active duty service for the families descending from the Levites, 30 to 50, right? Okay. In chapter 8, I don't ordinarily do this, but I'm going to do this because this is a common objection to Bible deniers, Christ deniers, Christian herders. Numbers 8, 23. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is what applies to the Levites from 25 years old and upward. And then he goes to the verse 25. By the age of 50, they shall retire from service, active duty service. So we have 25 to 50. In chapter, in chapter 4, we have 30 to 50. And so if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, as soon as you see something like that, what do you do? Uh-huh, there you go. Written by a guy, guys out in the sun, uh, too much sun, there is a mistake, there is a contradiction. And what do they want to do when they come to that conclusion? No need to believe the Bible, no need to believe in Jesus, and then live for yourself. People that don't love God are biased against God's word, and they're trying to get other, believe it or not, we are evangelical with our faith. We want everyone to believe in Jesus. If you love Jesus, you want every, if you're a mom or a dad, you want your kids to love Jesus. If you're a grandparent the way I am, I want all four of my grandsons to love Christ. And I want everyone to believe in Jesus. We're evangelical. But the unbeliever is evangelical. Except evangel means good news. They, the word for bad in Greek is kakos. I don't know what I would say kakos, uh, evangelical. But they're spreading the bad news. If they don't believe the Bible, they're trying to get you not to believe the Bible. That's what they want. Did God really say? So if I were you, I would not spend tons of time watching people on YouTube teach you why the Bible is rot gut. I just wouldn't. If you have a couple of things that they hit you with like this, you bring them to me. But faith is able to reconcile things where unbelief is not. Ordinarily, the way that theologians understand this is there's some kind of apprenticeship period. These Levites will be doing this work. In this five-year apprenticeship period, it's it's like a guy training a surgeon. The the, the trainee can't cut anybody, but the surgeon says to the trainee, pass me the scalpel. So all of these fellows are in training for active duty service, and so the, the common understanding is this is some kind of five-year apprenticeship period of before you get into active duty service, you're working under the tutelage of another person that's doing your job. But there is a fellow, he has a, a whole website on basically telling people don't believe the Bible because of the contradictions. He says something like this, those stupid Levites had to learn their job for five years. Boy, they were slow learners. 
to which I want to literally write the guy and say, how long do you think your doctor or your dentist went to school? Half an hour? No one balks that your doctor went to school for gobs of time or your dentist. You want a lawyer that just got it off a Cracker Jack's box? No, if you're a lawyer, I hear, my son-in-law is a lawyer, I hear law school is brutal. You see, see what I mean? You have people that care nothing for the Bible. They're hunting supposed contradictions. They won't listen to the reconciliation. It's not because they're anti-intellectual. This is a Romans 8, 7. They're biased against the Bible. They're biased. So they won't listen to the reconciliation. I point that out. So if as you're reading and someone says, oh, let me, I, I will tell you in advance. Okay, now, we're going to look at the, the lessons that I mentioned laid out here. Let me just mention, we're going to have, actually to chapter 10, we're going we're to continuously meet with these three guys. Uh, we're going to meet with Kohath, uh, Merari, and Gershon. It's actually Gershon is number one son, uh, uh, Kohath is number two son, Merari is the third son. The, let me just remind you of who these men are. You'll probably know it. These are uh, three sons of Levi. And Levi is the third boy, if you remember, son of Jacob and Leah. And Leah had, uh, Jacob had two wives and two concubines or secondary wives, which is, uh, that's a whole other story. Um, but he has six boys with Leah. She's the unloved wife which is just a train wreck. Polygamy is never a good idea. And then he has one daughter with her, Dinah. Leah's the third boy. And it means joined. Now the husband will really love me. And so these three sons, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, come from, uh, from Levi. And so Jacob and Leah are the grandfather and the grandmother on the paternal side. L- let me read Exodus 6 to just show you some more of this. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generation. Gershon, Kohath, Merari. And the length of Levi's life was 137 years. So there's the pre-Diluvian age before the, the, the uh, deluge, the flood. And then there's the post-Diluvian. Before the flood, people lived to like 900 years. Subsequent to the flood, they lived radically less. And then by the time you get to Psalm 90, Moses' psalm, he says, how long do people generally live now? Maybe 70, if you're really strong, have great genes, 80. If you're a rock star, maybe 90. Um, but the Bible sets a limit of like 120, I think, is the limit. And there is one of my health gurus that tells you how to beat that 120. Um, but he's pagan as opposed, and you're not going to beat uh, the limit that God set, even if you're a super smart scientist. So we're looking at the sons of Levi. Now, specifically in this passage, the bulk of the passage, at least one, chapter one, uh, 4, 1 through 20, we're dealing with one specific family descending from Kohath, that Levi, which is Kohath. These are the Kohathites. As I mentioned, this son is the second son of Levi. From the Kohaths, we get the priestly um, uh, family. So you, the Le, all priests are Levites, not all Levites are priests. The priests descend from Aaron, who also was a, a, a Levite. He was a Kohathite, but of a specific family. I know it gets, it gets confusing, but we're looking at God's distribution of labor, at least initially, 
to the Kohathites. Uh, Kohathites, uh, Kohath's son is Amram. Amram was the father of Miriam and Aaron and Moses. And so this is the kind of the lineage we have. So we have Levi's son Kohath, Kohath's son Amran, Amran's son Aaron, and it's from the sons of Aaron that we have the priests. All of these other guys that are not from the Aaronical family, they're all priestly helpers. They break down the tent, they carry the tent, they do these various things, but we have the one priestly line. Remember I said the first thing I want to consider is the sovereignty of God is, 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 is what I want to talk about. Sovereignty of God refers to the government of God. God created everything out of nothing, ex nihilo, in the space of six days, by the word of his power, and all very good. I am a 624 guy, that's another discussion, but God created everything. And God governs everything that he creates. So when we talk about the sovereignty of God, particularly in the church, Usually that's kind of like a dog whistle. I, I was raised Roman Catholic and then I became a born-again Christian and then I've been everywhere. And when I heard the word predestination as a baby Christian, I was not liking this idea. And until the Lord showed me a more excellent way concerning it, then I said, oh, I guess that's right and I was wrong. The sovereignty of God sometimes can be used as a cudgel for Christians to beat up other Christians and sometimes I think they're we're talking past one another. And sometimes, sometimes we can just use uh, sovereignty of God dealing with just soteriology, someone's salvation. But it doesn't mean that. It's, it's way bigger than that. God is the universal governor of everything. Martin Luther said the, the, the dust that flies off the ox cart, God governed it. We don't understand it, but he understands it. Now look at this chapter with all of the various things. If you were to walk through this, I want you guys to do this, and I want you guys to do that, and you guys do this, and you guys don't do that, and I want this family to, and then that, and then from that family, this, 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 and I want it done this way. Is that God just being picky, Yoon? No, God is a precise God. The Puritans, the, the name Puritan was a pejorative. It's like Methodist. The Methodist wasn't a good name. It was a pejorative. Puritan wasn't a good name. They would say, you, you guys are too strict and the Puritans would speak back and say, what? We serve a strict God. But they didn't mean strict the way that we mean. They meant precise. Our God is a precise God. He's a holy God. He's a perfect God. He, he's governing everything. He governs his creation. He's governing his redemption. And he wants it precisely the way he wants it because it comes from his mind. And so as God, and I don't mean to poke fun at free will. If you want my sermon notes, I have an excursus at the end of my sermon notes on the difference of free agency and free will. It, it's worthwhile. J.I. Packer. So if you, if you want my notes, give me your email at the end and you, I'll put you on the list. You'll get my, my manuscript every week. Presbyterians believe in free agency. We believe that human beings, we, there, there are real secondary causes. If I eat too much, I get too big. If I eat less, I get smaller. Real secondary causes. But God is the primary mover but he, he primarily governs things through their secondary causes. But I, I, I want to say this. When we come to God's sovereign distribution of labor, did Levi choose of Levi's own free will to be the priestly tribe? I, I don't mean to be so silly. No. 
Did God look up? And this is how free, this is how sovereignty is usually put in an Armenian church. And I was in an Armenian church. This is how they put it. Well, this God didn't pick pick. What he does is he look out. He looks out over the corridors of time, and since he knows the the, the future from beyond behind, he sees that you're going to make a good choice. So then he chooses you. God learns something that's called the, open theism. Um, that that's wrong. God doesn't learn anything. That would make God ignorant. And then that would make his choice of us contingent upon our choice of him. That is not biblical. This isn't God sitting up at the parade going, I can't believe God picked me driving a truck in Boston. Isn't that amazing? You know what I'm going to do now? I'm going to pick him. Did Levi pick, choose God to be the priestly tribe? No. Did the other tribes choose not to be the priestly tribe? Who did the choosing? Am I telling you that I can reconcile all the things that you could hit me with regarding the government of God? No, I cannot. But when we come here, God says, this is what I want. And he actually says, I want Aaron. Aaron's only touching the holy things and his kids. And if anybody else, even of the Levitical tribe, if they touch the holy things, what happens to them? Death. This is serious business. So our God is a holy God. Our God is a sovereign God. We, don't, we may understand our duty. We may not understand why of the duty. But we understand what the duty is. It's an expression of God's sovereignty. It isn't just a, a nice thing that we can learn as Calvinists to beat up on Arminians, which is silly anyways. Um, but there are real secondary causes. God is the primary mover. How this works with sin He's never the author of sin, James 1.13. I do not know. I've read a lot of smart guys trying to untie that Gordian knot. I don't know. But it doesn't make me deny the sovereignty of God. Um, I'm going to read a little bit from Romans 9. And not only this, there was Rebecca also when she conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand not because of works, but because of one who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May there never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very reason, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. This is the sovereignty of God. On some he has mercy, on others he has justice, and to some he calls to this line of service. If you were with us back in Numbers chapter 1, maybe a little bit in Numbers chapter 2, certainly Numbers 1, remember all the other men that were not of the tribe of Levi? They were warriors. And God said, I want all the young men of this age to fight. And that was an expression of God's sovereignty as well. And when I read Romans uh, 9, that brings us to the second point that I want to see the uniqueness of God's government is not according to the flesh. And it's along the lines of I'm choosing the younger over the older, which is not what human beings would do ordinarily. And why do I say that? God here, remember the sons of Levi. We have Gershon number one. We have um, uh, uh, the Kohath, Kohath number two. And the Merari number three. 
Who is exalted? What number boy? Number two. So the younger son of Kohath is exalted over his older brother of um, Gershon. And God chooses the younger uh, over the older. He actually does this a number of places in the Bible, so it's significant. When I became a Christian at 26 years old, there was an old man that taught me my Bible. I, I never had a, read a Bible, really, to speak of before that. And back home, I'm called Jack. And he would say, Jack, if God repeats something in the Bible, you should take a note because he's, he's teaching you something there. If God repeats something in the Bible, I'll take his place. If he repeats something in the Bible, you should take notice. It's like for us as parents, we repeat ourselves all the time to our kids or our grandkids. It's because we want to make emphasis on something. And so in this, in this business of God choosing uh, the lesser over the greater, the younger over the uh, elder, I want you to think of um, God chose uh, what boy to be over Ishmael, the firstborn son, the son of the promise, Isaac. And then here, God chooses then Jacob, who came out second as, um, as the twin over and against the firstborn Esau. Um, who was the firstborn? God chooses uh, Joseph over, over Reuben, the firstborn. Well, what's going on here? What's going on here? The Bible says in the book of Isaiah, which is, this is going to help us with the Christian faith, that God's ways are not what? You know what that one is? God's ways are not what? Man's ways. God's ways are infinitely higher. Um, God is taking the lesser, the lower, the younger, and exalting him over the older. The way that human beings ordinarily work is that the firstborn... If he's a man, he, he, he is kind of the leader of the rest of the kids. I had an older sister and a younger sister, and I'm the only son. And my mother, when she was doing her will, and I'm not very good with money. I just am not good with numbers, not good with money. And my mother called me apologetically. She said, John, I know you're the son. I know you're the son, and it should fall to you this because you're the son, the first son. But you're not good with money, and your sisters are. So they're going to distribute all my money in whatever and I said, Mom, they're good with money, and I'm not. So she chose, she knew she was going against what ordinarily we think. God specifically does that for a reason. Our flesh thinks, you know what? If I were going to create Christianity, if we were going to create Christianity, would we create the Christianity of the Bible? No. What would the, what would, if we were to create Christianity, what would it look like? If we did it, human beings. It would look like Islam. That's what it would look like. And how would that look like? Well, we have a conversion plan for you today. And here's the plan. Repeat this sentence or I kill you. Wow, everybody's converted. There you go. That's man. Now the church has fallen into that too. But it's not the Christianity of the Bible. The Christianity of the Bible is what? Here is my beloved son, John Owen's death of death. And the son will die that he would he would put to death, death by his death, and we would live. And look at Christ. Is, remember Pontius Pilate says to Jesus, and what is it, John 18, 19? So you're a king? And what does Jesus say? I'm a king. I've been born to die. I've been, I, I, I have come for this purpose. But my kingdom is not the way that you think. Because if my kingdom was the way that you think, I would be killing you. But that's not how God wants it. I'm going to die. 
that they live. Look at who Christ comes from, a little uh, young virgin, Mary, not, not a power. He's born in an out-of-way place. He's born in a cattle stall. Nothing that the flesh says, this is what we're going to do. But God says, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to choose what the flesh thinks is absolutely foolish. This is a Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 1. The gospel, the cross, the, the Bible, Christianity is ridiculous to the flesh. This is why most Christians don't want it, because they're not born again. They think, they think well, who, who would believe? How will you get people to come to your church? I don't know. That's God's business. But God says this is how it's going to work. My son will die. But he looks like nothing, a, a servant. He looks like he's losing, but he's winning. That's this principle. He's sovereign. His ways are utterly antithetical to the flesh. And the, the, the last point I want to make, and I'll, I'll be briefer here. From chapter 2 to chapter 10, specifically, directly, and almost exclusively, in the other chapters, it, it, we, we still have it, our chalker block filled with directives for the Levites in, in the tabernacle service, which is the gospel. Remember who these people are. So, so, so the, the book of Numbers opens up with two years emancipation from slavery, and it's going to end just on the eastern side of the Jordan River. So, so 38 years. It's going to cover a 38-year period until they, just before they go into the promised land. What are they doing for that 40 years? As they're, they're walking in the desert. And what is God going to feed them? This is informative. What will God feed them for 40 years? What are they going to eat? What's their diet for 40 years? Now, I know the quail story that comes out the nose and God's mad at them, but what do they eat primarily for 40 years? Bread and water. Remember I said these chapters are Christ, are the gospel? Read 1 Corinthians chapter 10. What's the water from the rock? Christ. Read Read John chapter 6. The bread that comes down out of heaven is, is right, right? But God provides for their body f- bread and water, bread and water for 40 years on, and you're on a hike. So bread and water and then the rest of the directives have to do with what? The soul. That's what the chap- these chapters are all about. The flesh says, body. And if they even have a fleeting thought for the soul, it's always some goofball deal. An angel told me something. God has the exact opposite. I'm not saying that God doesn't care for the body. Christ purchases us. I love the Heidelberg Catechism. He purchases us body and soul. But God is teaching us when all 10 chapters are 100% care for the soul. Care for the soul. This is what the Sabbath is all about. Six days a week, we're working just to stay alive and pay the rent and send our kids to college. He gives us one whole day to forget about the bodily stuff and think, set our minds on things above. We have souls. My kids have souls. My grandkids have souls. Every bit of this, he's concerned for, it's our soul that has communion with God. Yes, I understand God purchases our body and we're going to get a new, new, new body. Praise God. Praise God we're getting a new body. If you have a bad body or a broken body, which everybody does, by the way. Everybody. No one's going to beat 1 Corinthians 15. I told my wife, who's super, she has a little fitness watch, and she's a super runner. 
I said, if you keep running, you're going to be 1 Corinthians 15. The only way to not beat 1 Corinthians 15 is to be on a 20-mile run and get hit by a bus. When you're healthy as a clam and whammo, you get nailed. God is calling us to have concern for our eternal soul, and he provides all of these things for us. I'll say this by application, and I promise I'll be quiet. Let's say you're going to go on a vacation, but I don't mean like a two-day Nikki new vacation. You're going for three weeks or four weeks. So you plan where you're going to go. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to wear this, and I'm going to wear that. What about this? Do you say, well, on the Lord's Day, where, where will I go to church? Do you throw your Bible, if you even have a paper Bible anymore, do you put it in your suitcase? Do you plan, well, if I'm there at the hotel or wherever I go, will I be able to have my Bible and will I be able to pray every day? Do you do that? What about if you're going to pack up and move somewhere? You're going to Sheboygan. Do we reason like this? Well, where are the best schools? Where are the safest neighborhoods? Where's the best restaurants? What's the best hospital? And we never think about, are there churches that preach the word of God there? Do Christians think like that? God is telling us here, set your mind on things above. Value the soul. If I could convince myself, if I could convince you, your soul is more valuable before God than your body. I'm not talking abuse your body, which is a breaking of the sixth commandment. But God shows us by the number of verses, just the content that he values the soul. Well, these are the lessons that I've gleaned from from Numbers chapter 4. May God be um, pleased with the preaching of his word.